folks. This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is May the 14th, 2018, and this is episode 2218 of the Survival Podcast. It is a Monday. That means it's listener feedback show. To submit questions, comments, news stories, you name it for a show like today, just send me an email, jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. Again, jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. Make sure you include the initials TSPC in the subject line as though they were a word. TSPC, no spaces, no punctuation, and then a space, and then article for Jack, comment for Jack, thought for Jack. Jack, you're an idiot. Jack, you're a jerk. Jack, you don't know what you're talking about. You know, whatever you want. Just send me an email like that, and I'll probably read it, or at least I will pretend to if you use any of the things. Actually, when I get the Jack, you're a jerk emails, I always read them because sometimes... They're, they're from humorous things. Like, I'll say, I say, you know, you're never going to email me and tell me I'm a jerk because you're out of debt. And I'll get an email from someone that is out of debt. And they're like, Jack, you're a jerk. And it's all sarcastic. Because of you, I paid off all my debt. And, you know, this is all the great things going on in my life. Or, like, they really are the most humorous, funny, freaking emails. I, I've thought about doing, like, a Jack hate mail segment, like, maybe once a week or even just once a month, reading the best hate mail of that month. The only thing I don't want to do is I don't want to encourage it, but it does give me a good laugh, and occasionally I read one. In all seriousness, though, if you want to send something in for a show like this, jack at the com, TSPC in the subject line, and then make your point or ask your question in, like, one sentence, and then hit the return key a couple times and then give me the details, and it'll make it much more likely that it'll get screened, and therefore if it gets screened and gets past the initial screening, it will end up on the show. What do we got today? Uh, well, we have what Australia's ban on cash purchases over $10,000, U.S., I'm sorry, AUS, AUD, Australian dollars, that is, about $7,500 U.S., tells us about a lot of things, our future, concepts on cryptocurrency, you name it. Um, what we can learn from California's solar panel mandate, all about buying, squatting on, using, etc. domain names. More on the high point carbines and some stuff you likely didn't know about the 10 millimeter. G, Roundup is bad for you, okay, says the government now. Uh, what is the deal with pressure-treated lumber and gardening, and how long does it last? And aquaponics with a pool pump and a really big tank. How big? Really big. We'll talk about all of that and more in just a few moments. Sponsor of the day number one today, Jeff, the Berkey Guy Gleason, with his website, Directive21.com. That's the word directive, followed by the numbers, numbers, jeez, numbers two and one, Directive21.com. And uh, what are you going to get from the Berkey Guy? I know it's shocking, uh, but Berkey Water Filtration Systems and support for the parts and products thereof. I know that's shocking because he's the Berkey Guy. But in all seriousness, the Berkey guy is the Berkey guy. Don't don't go get your Berkey from some guy at a gun show that got into the water filter business last week. Go with the original Berkey guy, the guy that's one of the top distributors of Berkey in the world. Uh, he's got great pricing, great service, and he will take care of you. He also does a discount for MSB members. I got an email this week. The guy said I bought a, a, a Berkey system. Uh, with you know filled it with filters so it would be as fast as possible. And basically, he said that one discount paid for my my MSB membership for the year. Jeff's a great guy, great product, great service, great discount for MSB members. Check him out at directive21.com. Remember, use those discounts. Next up today, knifekits.com. Knifekits is an awesome site, man. 
you know, making knives is one of those things that seems kind of spooky and weird and hard, and it, it does take a lot of skill. It really does. But you can kind of shortcut a lot of things by going with a kit as your first build. So you can get a knife blank that's basically done, just needs to be sharpened. And uh, you get some handle material, put that handle material on it, and do the finish work on that, make a sheath for it, and you've got something you made. And then you can go to the next level if you want to. You can get raw materials from knife kits, you know, raw steel, Damascus steel. You can get amazing material for your handles. Mammoth tusk, that's one of the things that's available there. Cape buffalo horn, you name it. Knifekits.com is a great entry into a hobby that could become you know, a, a, a side hustle or even a full-time business. Check them out today at Knifekits.com. They also do a discount for members of the MSB. Before we get to your feedback, let's take a look at the year in history for this episode. The year is 128 A.D., Feeding the Capital, contributed by David Verne at tspwiki.com. At this time in the empire's history, Rome had a population of 1 to 1.6 million. This will be the largest any European city reached until London during the Industrial Revolution. Their diet primarily consisted of bread, olive oil, and wine, with an estimated 330,000 tons of grain needed annually. Italy would never have been able to grow the amount of grain needed, so trade was used to fill the demand. North Africa and Egypt had always been large producers of grain, and with Roman rule over the entire Mediterranean Sea, the amount produced and exported each year grew. In the waning years of the Republic, the Romans had wiped out all the pirates in the sea, making natural dangers the only problem for ships. During the Principate, the current system of government where the emperor ruled but acted merely as a first among equals, the empire stayed out of the way of the market and only stepped in if famine or similar problems disrupted trade. This allowed the merchant class to flourish, and many companies were established with shareholders and functioned similarly to today's corporations. This ease of trade enabled many cities to exist, even though they couldn't produce enough food for themselves similar to modern cities. My take by David Verne. One of the little thought about but most important inventions in history is the contract. When people don't know one another, trust can be hard to come by, and without trust, transactions can't take place. With contracts enforced by a judicial system, people can rely on protection in the contract and can do business without trusting one another. The Romans vigorously enforced contracts and receipts, but the government wasn't the only enforcement. The market regulated itself. The contract didn't involve the state and only included private individuals. They could hire a private arbitrator. Guilds were established and were essentially cartels that closely policed their members' behavior. Merchants or laborers who broke contracts would be fined. If the behavior continued, to find they would, could find themselves blacklisted and unable to do business at all. You know, what you see here is a, a pretty good template for how things should be in the modern world um, and how they can actually progress to an even better level. If you've listened to this show for any length of time, you know I'm not a fan of the state. And when you enter in a contract between two and another entity, and the state is included in it, what you're saying is, since I don't trust this relationship, I want a contract, and I want it to be arbitrated by the state. My problem with that is that I don't trust the state either. Now, think about that and let that sink in for a minute. So you have another party involved in a contract, and you want to make sure that everything is done uh, as agreed to, And your choice of arbitrator in general in our society today is the state. Do you trust the state? And not only do you trust the state to do the right thing in the end, but do you trust them to act swiftly? 
if, if, if there's a problem? Do you trust them to act in a way that actually makes it make financial sense for you to enforce the contract through the state? What I mean by that is if you owe me $4,000 and I have to use the state to get your, the money from you, it might cost me more than you owe me. Now, hmm, there was only a system of arbitration that could be better than the state at doing this, that we could do in a way that could be completely devoid of trust, where we really can do business without trusting anyone, but we can trust that either the contract will be delivered upon and then paid for, or if the contract is not delivered on, then it won't be paid for. Hmm, if there was only some way we could do that. Oh, I know, they're called smart contracts, and that's what cryptocurrency enables. Interesting, isn't it? And see, that's what I think we're headed for with the world of cryptocurrency beyond, hey, I'm going to get rich because I bought Bitcoin. No. I think what, the, the real liberation of society through cryptocurrency is the ability to con conduct transactions privately, uh, independent of any third party, and through the use of smart contracts when it's not a cut-and-dry thing. In other words, I'm asking you to send me... I don't know, it could be as simple as you're going to send me a product and it's not here yet, so you want me to pay for it in advance. We could execute a smart contract that confirms the product is delivered and then the payment goes through. There's lots of ways we can construct smart contracts. But I want you to think about this as we finish up today's history segment. Um, the most monumentous contract that people generally enter into in their lives is the contract of marriage. It really is. There's really few things that can alter a life the way a contract of marriage can. In general, when we get married, we are entering into a contract with a party we trust. If you don't trust someone, you tend not to marry them. Now, sometimes that trust is ill-advised, but it's a trusting relationship. And we have chosen, in our infinite wisdom as human beings, to include a third party in that two-party contract And for you religious folks, I don't mean God. So there's that's the third party if you want it. A fourth party then for those that would look at it that way. The state. Probably the least trustable entity that there is to be equitable and fair if the contract requires any type of enforcement. And that is who we have chosen. And we have even lobbied for equal rights to all to have this horrible arbitrator. Well, folks, I'm telling you that in the future we will probably be able to create smart contracts around marriages as well, which I think will make a lot of sense. Um, that's the direction that we are heading in as a society due to techno-anarchy is what we're really talking about. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and get into the uh, main topic of today's show. So this first story actually kind of springboards right off of the history segment and the concept of contracts in, in a, a different sort of way. Um, this is on Gizmodo. Australia bans all cash for purchases over $7,500 starting in July of 2019. Let me read this article to you. Australia's Liberal Party government has announced that it will soon be illegal to purchase anything over $10,000 Australian dollars uh, with cash. The government says it's uh, encouraging the transition to a digital society and cracking down on tax evasion. But not everyone is happy with the move. Quote, this will be bad news for criminal gangs. Terrorists and those who are just trying to cheat on their tax or get a discount for something or letting someone else cheat on their tax. You notice how, like, you buying something for cash and getting a discount so that the seller can cheat on their tax is equated with criminal gangs, terrorists. Criminal gangs and terrorists. 
by the government. In fact, who says this? Uh, Australia's Treasurer Scott Morrison said in a speech announcing the government's new budget, it's not clever, it's not okay, it's a crime. Just kind of reminds me of, of uh, Jeff Sessions going, it's not funny, good people don't smoke marijuana. It's just the same kind of thing, like just creating this class of people that you're going to then villainize because they don't want to play by your friggin' rules. Uh, the ban starts on July 1st, 2019, and any payments over $10,000 will have to be made by check, credit, or debit card. The government will enforce the measure by allocating roughly $300 million for what it calls the Black Economy Standing Task Force. The Black Economy Standing Task Force. And they're going to spend $300 million for some more jackbooted thugs to enforce this rule. How are they going to pay for it? Well, the goal is to drum up about $3 billion in new tax revenue over the next four years. So you can spend $300 million for your jackbooted thugs to make you $3 billion. Well, that's a 10-to-1 return. That's pretty good business for the government, isn't it? As The Guardian points out, one of the biggest targets for the new task force will be the illicit tobacco trade. Australia has the highest tax on cigarettes in the world, with an average pack costing about 40 Australian dollars. That's 30 U.S. But there's a huge black market for cigarettes, which comes from both stolen goods and smuggling from outside the country. Taxes aren't paid on cigarettes until the point of sale, so theft from tobacco warehouses is unusually common in Australia. You see how stupid these people are? They're even they write these articles. Okay, um, that's not they don't steal from the warehouses because the taxes aren't paid to the final point of sale. They steal from the warehouses because that's where lots of cigarettes are that are worth lots of money because of this usury type of tax that the government's placed on it. I mean, I, whatever. Australians have a strange relationship with cash, strange in the sense that they still use it. Roughly 37% of all commercial transactions in Australia are made of using cash. That number is just 32% in the U.S. and 15% in Sweden. Many Swedes are angry about its slow move to a cashless society, arguing that going completely digital causes security concerns. And India began phasing out a whopping 86% of its currency in November of 2016 by invalidating 501,000 rupee notes as legal tender. But there are also regional quirks that make the Australian government more prone to crack down on cash. For instance, it's almost impossible to find a $100 bill in circulation in Australia. The Reserve Bank of Australia still prints hundreds, so where do they all go? The rarity of the hundred note, nicknamed the Kermit for its green color, is attributed to both massive hoarding overseas as well as being preferred method of payment for organized crime in Australia. Some Australian economists have even floated the idea of phasing out the Kermit, but there has been significant pushback from the public. While a ban on cash purchases over $10,000 may not seem like a big deal for the average person, plenty of small businesses are upset about the plan. It's going to screw me. 95% of my business is cash collections, Paul Thomas, owner of Commander Security Services in Sydney, told News Corp this week. On a monthly basis, we can process and move up to 4 to $5 million, either picking up cash processing uh, and ET, EFTing it to customers' accounts and recarrying it from customers to their bank branch. See, I don't think that's going to really affect him that much because he's actually dealing in small amounts of money that are collected at a single point and then transferred to banks and between locations. So I don't know that it's going to screw him that much. Today, it's any sum of money over 10000 in Australia, but anyone with their eyes open can see where this is going. We should expect governments to move away from cash over the next decade. Just as currency anarchists continue to insist that cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and Ethereum are the real future. Researchers in the 1970s predicted a widespread debit card system would be a perfect surveillance tool, and they weren't exactly wrong. 
What they didn't predict was what happens when a completely digital economy gets hacked. Equifax's recent loss of so much personal data on virtually half of all Americans could feel just like a prelude to many more snafus to come. It's kind of a little misdirection there at the end about the, the concept of, well, what, what about you know, your identity hacking? Everybody's identity is already subject to being hacked anyway. Um, so the real story here, though, is the government wanting more money. That's, that's all this really comes down to. The government wants more money and more information about its people. Whenever you conduct a transaction and you use a credit card, a debit card, a check, a bank transfer, etc., it goes into databases that, that say things about you, like you know what you spend your money on and where you go and things like that. And like, Did you buy a bunch of stuff that maybe makes us think you're building a grow room for marijuana because there's people that have had their houses raided over this? There was a couple of either Washington or Oregon, and the guy was basically a plant geek, and he was growing completely legal plants, and it really screwed things up, and it cost him a lot of money, and the court told him to go screw, that it was okay for the police to do what they did, which was gain access to his purchase records and say, hey, you're buying things that people that grow marijuana buy, which would be, you know, like grow lights and grow tents and shelving, like things that people that grow any plant buy. Yeah. So the government wants the information and the money. Now, this is the issue for the government. And, and this is a lesson that government has never learned. In every instance that you look at what government has done, it has ramped up these things until it's destroyed itself. And that is the lesson of the black market that they're trying to curtail here. Seriously. The more you push on a market, the more you interrupt free trade... The more you try to take out of the market. Why do people in Australia buy cigarettes from the, the black market? Do they do it because they want to do business with the black market? They want to be committing a crime? They want to take a risk? No, they do it because a pack of cigarettes is 40 freaking dollars. That's why. And so what do you think would happen to black market activity on cigarettes if, the, if a pack of cigarettes went to 80 or a hundred dollars? Well, the black market would grow. So every time government squeezes to get more blood from a stone, the more blood goes elsewhere. And so where is the, they, they kind of touch on it right here, don't they, with the cryptocurrency? What is the logical thing for people to start doing? Doing business in cryptocurrency. And, and check this out. Well, you're supposed to report it. But I forgot. Right? But did you break the law? I didn't use cash. It's an electronic transaction. Uh, can we see it? Uh, I can't find my key, and I lost the money. See? I, I lost my seed. Uh, damn it. I wish I could show it to you because I, I, I lost all the money. How do I deduct that from my taxes as a loss since I can't get it back? Since it's gone forever. Well, we're going to take it. Okay. Go ahead. And that's even if, you know, they know. You, I mean, you understand that the majority of the bluster about the government cracking down on cryptocurrency is all centered around exchanges. That once the money goes into the ecosystem, for all intents and purposes, they, can figure, they can't figure out anything about where it's going, especially with privacy coins, especially with you know uh, the, the interchange of currency between individual parties. And so all they're going to do is push more people into that world. And we're moving toward a place where even cracking down on the exchanges isn't going to be possible. 
exchanges are going to move to completely decentralized exchanges where it's really a service and the service itself is decentralized. You think about it like music sharing. Now, what killed music sharing was not the government cracking down on it because every time the government cracked down on a sharing service, another one popped up. And to the point where you couldn't do anything because really it was about millions of users all making their files available to each other through a cloud. And the platform was really not that important. And what would have happened with music sharing, and this is, and I'll tell you why it didn't in a second, how this is all related. What happened with music sharing and what, what, what prevented it from evolving to where cryptocurrency is going to go today is the music companies got smart. And they stopped trying to use a 1960s model in the middle, you know, the early 2000s. And they started working with and, and using platforms that were subscription services. And when it became possible that, you know, you could go on Pandora and just listen to all, make all these lists up and listen to all kinds of cool music you forgot about. And for four bucks or five bucks a month, you could get rid of the ads. And then, you know, Apple Radio came out in $9.99 a month. You could literally listen to anything you want, whenever you want, all the time, forever. And most people thought, you know, if you're a music enthusiast, you had to have been buying, on average, an album a month. And so you were spending more than ten bucks to buy that new album. And you had access to all the music ever for ten bucks. People said, well, okay. Okay. You know, and then YouTube Red now lets you create music playlists if you have that. So if you have Prime Music that's available. So all of these services came out that made music so cheap. that And they made it convenient and they made it cool. That people just stopped using these other alternatives. Cryptocurrency is going to go into this decentralized exchange model. And this is where music would have went. Music would have went to a point where these types of sharing services existed in, them, in, the, in and of themselves in a decentralized platform. So it wouldn't have been LimeWire or Napster. It would have been basically the Internet. But it's DTube, if, you, if you're familiar with how DTube works. Except DTube, of course, was put out by Steemit. So at least there's a place to go. And go after somebody. But you really, if you did, you can't make it go away. And that's what will happen with exchanges. To where there's really no need for a Bitrix anymore. Unless Bitrix figures out how to play that game. And you'll get out of the world of when you set up an account for people to need to know who you are. You know your customer requirements. Because the only thing that the service really needs to know is that uh, customer A if we're going to call them that, let's say participant A, because they're not really a customer, participant A, exchange with participant B at an agreed-upon exchange rate between these two things. And that transaction went through, and both parties got what they were supposed to get, done the end, infinity. And once you have that, there's no place for government in the exchange of currencies, or in the transactions of currencies. And if you add things like smart contracts to it, virtual nations, you're basically supplanting government. And this is, this is what people don't really understand. This is what government's actually afraid of in the world of cryptocurrency. And it's why they're going to work very hard to actually, instead of try to stamp it out, to normalize it. To try to put it into a Pandora, Apple Music, iHeartRadio model. To where it, 
It's easy to use. It's okay to use it. We get our peace. And if you do it our way, you don't have to worry about us, you know, smacking you down at some point in the future. But I don't know that they can. But that's their only hope of survival because the reality is the entire concept of, of, of a, a distributed architecture, a decentralized architecture for content, contracts, contract enforcement, currency, the exchange of goods and services, the exchange of currencies themselves, and eventually the exchange of true, what we would call securities today, like stocks in a company. You can eventually get to a point where there is no need of the government to do anything because the exchange will work by a given set of rules, and if you enter into that exchange platform, you have thereby given consent to those rules. And therefore, there's no need for anybody to do anything because only those things can happen that way because code. Does that mean people can't be defrauded or scammed? No, but people get defrauded and scammed all the time. You know, all this, well, so-and-so got in an exchange and they took the, the, the currency and they stole it. And then these people lost their money. Well, tell me that, you know, people that get defrauded of money investing in condos in the 60s that never got built. I mean, this is all the same. It, it, there's always going to be scam artists and rubes. And if you don't do stupid things, you generally don't lose your money. But that, that's where this is going to push people. Let's move on to another one. So, you know, as long as government's mandating something, California is going to, you know, every time a government mandates something, California's like, we got to mandate something too. So my second story for you guys today is California is requiring solar panels on all new houses. Um, this is an article on The Verge, and I'll, I'll give you the upshot of it. Starting next year... Actually, it's starting in 2020, so two years from now-ish, a year and a half. Kind of crazy, isn't it? It's going to be 2020. Um, that's two and a half years, isn't it? No, it's a year and a half. Good God. Anyway, so what they are saying is they want to cut greenhouse emissions and all. But what do you want to – and there's a guy that pops up in here that has an opinion on this. He thinks it's pretty good, and he owns a company that does the install work. Okay? I'm just saying. What do you want to bet that there's a little bit of that going on? So – They want to curb greenhouse gases and increase the percentage of the electricity produced in California. But what it's going to mean is that houses are going to cost between eight dollars to $12,000 more in a state where the median price of a single-family home is already over a half million dollars, $565,000 to be exact. Uh, Habitat Humanities pissed off because they're going to have to raise another eighty dollars to $100,000 a year in donations to continue doing what they're doing. Uh, this one particular uh, group of them in California, that's not the whole company. Uh, residents, uh, though, can expect that this would, in the long run, be beneficial to them. Because electricity is so expensive in California, uh, they, you could see your mortgage payment, if you buy a new house, go up by $40.00. But their utility bills would fall by as much as $80. Over time, a family would save $19,000 of today's money adjusted for inflation over 30 years, according to Beck, who is the guy that says this is a good idea. Anyway, so here's my view on this. This is a terrible idea, but it still might benefit us, non-Californians. Uh, first of all, if you are going to do this, and this is not... Is it right or is it okay or is it acceptable? That's not what I'm talking about. If you are going to do this and financially make it work, California actually is the perfect place to do it. Number one, they do have a tremendous amount of sunshine to turn into electricity. They have very few cloudy days, and therefore solar works good in California. Number two, electricity prices are high. 
I think that's bad, but if you're going to do this, you want to do this in a place where electricity prices are high because you do get a payback faster because you're paying an artificially high price for the power. And then you actually do want to do this in a state with expensive homes. And here's why. Let's say the cost of my home uh, goes up by $8,000 and I bought a $100,000 home in Texas, which is getting harder to do, but you can still do it. Well, that means that my home's now $108,000, and the burden placed on me was 8%. 8% doesn't just raise my payment. It also raises my down payment significantly, okay? 8% is a significant increase in the cost of a house. But if it raises the cost of my half-million-dollar house... By $8,000, what percentage of the total cost of the house does that work out to? Well, doing it quick in your head, you just take 8% for the $100,000, divide it by 5, you get about 1.6%. So now, it's only a 1.6% increase in the total cost of the house. Now, again, this is not a ethical or moral judgment on this. I'm just saying that from the financial analysis and an ROI analysis... That California is the perfect market to do this in if you're going to do this terrible thing that should not be done. Okay, Now, how could that benefit us? So if you start looking at solar, what really drives the price of solar down is economy of scale. The more people buying it, the better. Until If you do this everywhere, that's not so much the case. Because then they have a guaranteed market. And when, when businesses have guaranteed markets, they don't have a lot of incentive to lean out price. Okay, But if that's a guaranteed market somewhere, and you're trying to win that market, and there are other companies competing for that same business, and there is a complete total open market elsewhere, and in that other market you have to actually earn business by making people want it. And, there will, and it, it, as long as this is done on new homes... There will never be a complete monopoly on this. It will only be if they ever mandate it to be retroactively done to existing homes, which I, I, I think that you know, you're know you talking Congress clowns being drug out in the street and set on fire if they try to do that because people will lose their homes because they won't be able to do it. So I, I don't think they can quite do that. So the companies have to compete for these other, these other customers. They would have to compete to get me to do this. I'm not moving. I've got way too much into this place. You know, I love it here. I don't want to go anywhere. So if they want me to put solar up on my roof, they got to get me to do it with, with it making financial sense for me to do it. So if you get a huge state like California, and I was like, I wonder how many new homes are being built out there. So per quarter over the last year, no, actually over the last one, two, three, year, four years here I'm looking at, um, per, per not quarter, per six-month period, so for half a year, New housing starts for uh, for individual homes have ranged between 15,000 to 25,000 per six months. Multifamily, so that could be anything from a duplex up to an apartment complex, have ranged from about 23,000 to as high as almost 30,000 per six-month period. So we're talking 60 to 80,000 minimum per six-month period, or per year, um, going forward. Just to say 60,000 rooftops that they're going to have to put solar panels on um, per year. That's a lot of extra solar that wasn't originally planned for. And solar is already in this 
this price drop. The other thing that's going to happen is to be competitive. The more houses that have solar, to be competitive in selling your home, the more incentive there becomes to add solar as a sales tool if you ever want to move up, buy a different house, sell your house, etc. And that all pushes the price and cost of solar down. Now, you guys know if you've heard me talk about this before, I, I truly believe by the year 2030, a rooftop without solar on it will be exceedingly rare, except in cases where it just doesn't make sense. The house is in a place where you put all the solar you want on it, you just don't get much energy out of it due to solar aspect or, or whatever. Okay, um, But I, I really believe that's the case. I think this may accelerate that, and it will keep driving the price per watt down. Because where we're headed with solar, and I, I know a lot of people that are opposed to the wackiness of the the uh, the eco-Nazis, I guess is the best way to describe it. The complete global warming believers that believe everything, including the ocean, is going to rise and kill us all in the next five years, just like it was going to do five years ago and five years before that. And Al Gore should be sainted and made into the king of the world and all that kind of... Because of that nonsense... You tend to be skeptical at the alternative energy industry. But where solar is headed is going to make it to a point where it won't be long. And not long in our, we have gotten a microwave society where when I say not long, you're expecting this to be next year. And next year is not, it's not going to happen. We're going to have to go longer than that. But we are going to get to a point where the cost of generating solar electricity is comparable to or less than the average cost of buying electricity. What's actually holding this off in many big good markets for solar, like Texas, is the cost of generating electricity is going down for the utility companies. There are people in Texas paying as low as $0.06 cents a kilowatt for electricity in Texas. $0.06. Cents. Uh, I th I'm paying like 8 because I'm under contract. I got 8. I locked in 8 a long time ago. Yeah, so when my contract comes up, we may be able to drive it down further. So that's actually held solar back because as the price of solar per watt has gone down, the price per kilowatt from the utility company has gone down as well. They'll reach a point they can't go down any further. And when you get to a point where you can buy like the fifth gen or sixth gen of the Tesla Powerwall or a competitive product to it, um, and you can buy that for really cheap, And you can have battery storage, and you can buy solar panels that are going to pay you back in three years instead of 13 or 20 years. You're going to get to a point where people just do it out of greed. And I mean greed in the best way possible. Like, it financially is better for me to put these things on my roof than not to. And I think this mandate may actually accelerate it. Again, I don't want you to think that means that I think it's a good idea that they should do it. But I am a realist and a pragmatist, and that's what I think will come out. I also think that there will be other states doing this, and I think this will be, in a weird way, kind of like marijuana. There's enough money here that major manufacturers will lobby state governments to do this. This actually reminds me of my days when I was evil, and I worked for a company called Fluke Networks. And I didn't realize I was evil. I thought this was a good thing, right? And that's what I think some of these people, they think they're doing good things. We would work with consultants to spec a job. And in that job, we would spec the cable will be Burtech, the jacks will be Oratronics, this is where you plug your computer in, you know, et cetera. The, the cable management system will be by Cablophil. 
And we would spec in every part of that job. And we would spec in that the testing will be done with, you know, Fluke Networks testers. And we might even, when a client really wanted test equipment and couldn't afford it in their budget, but they had a huge infrastructure budget, we would say that the installers will use, you know, one tester set per floor of a 10-floor building, let's say, and deliver the testers as a deliverable with the documentation at the end of the job. Boom. And what that meant is that the customer then ended up in a situation where if, a, if an installer wanted to use another product, even if it was better for them, they couldn't use it because they were locked into the spec. At least I was doing a free market, though. That customer chose our spec. We sold them on it, but they chose it. Now, imagine if I could write that spec for every installation in America for data cabling and have it enforced by the will of the state. That's the opportunity for solar companies right now, to grow your business through mandate. And, and I think they'll do it. And I think there'll be states that resist, just like marijuana, these states that resist it a very, very long period of time because it's anti-free market. And there are states that will incorporate it because, well, they're socialist states. Let's take another one. The next one is on domain names. And uh, it was actually sent in for an expert council member, but I'm going to take this one because this is one I think I can do a really good job for you on. Uh, Mike, who wrote in and asked about it. Um, would you suggest purchasing a domain name if it's not expected to be used for six to 12 months? In general, Mike, I'd say yes, as long as you don't get out of hand with that. There are people that own 300 domain names and have never used but three of them. Uh, and that kind of goes in your next one. So in general, yes, because there always is the potential that you have a brand, an idea, a concept, and there's a good domain name available for it. And when you go to buy it later, someone else will have registered it. And in their head, as soon as you say you're interested in buying it from them, the value of it will go to some ridiculous level that it's not actually worth. Um, I have sold domain names for several thousand dollars before. Um, I've actually been approached over domain names a couple times, and uh, you know, what do you want to? How much you want to pay for it? And that's always my approach is always to get them to give me a number first. And if it's like fifty bucks, I might even say yes if I know I'm never going to use it. I've got whatever I planned on it for, it's not there. I would usually at least a few hundred dollars. Uh, and I've I've had one that was a really great domain name for a project Neil Franklin and I were going to do, and we just we got to the point where we're never going to do it, and we ended up getting twenty five hundred bucks for it. Uh, it's harder to do than it used to be because there's not a lot of good ones left like that. Um, there's what's called squatting, and there's a lot of that that goes on out there. So if it's a good domain, if it's marketable, uh, the potential that somebody that's a squatter will pick it up and grab it is there. So, however. In most instances, if somebody hasn't grabbed a domain yet, it either doesn't have one, two, three, four off it, so Stephen Harris doesn't own it, or it, it's not, you know, it's not that sought out, or it would not be available. Uh, though there are people that eventually let their domains expire, they don't get picked up by a squatter, and they do go back into the ecosystem, and become available again. And some good ones show up that way from time to time. Uh, what companies would you recommend for just domain registration? Um, GoDaddy is probably the easiest one to use if they have the domain that you want to buy, if they have the extension that you want to buy. Uh, I use a site called Hosting Nation, uh, hosting-nation.com. I use them because I used to resell a lot of telecommunications product, products, and I was a reseller for a company that I resold their product through. So since I have almost all my domains there, as long as I'm buying something with an extension they offer, I continue to use them. And that's my bigger piece of advice. None of this is really that big a deal. Any good company that's been around for a while is an okay, safe place. To ha how, how's your domain names? But try to keep them all in one place. 
if you're going to have more than one. It just makes your life easier. Uh, how many variations of a domain would you recommend purchasing? Well, Mike, um, in general, one. <laughs> uh, unless you have big branding plans, and I don't mean big branding plans in your head, I mean in reality. If you're going to come up with a product that's going to have a branded name, let's say, you know, Widget XYZ, uh, and you are going to put money and time and effort behind, you know, marketing Widget XYZ. And, and you know, it's not something stupid like, you know, Pod, that I, the iPod tried to claim ownership of the word Pod, and no one even cares about it anymore, um, where it's such a generic term. But, I mean, you actually, you are going to brand something as the Acme Widget or something like that. And there is potential for brand piracy. Then you might want to grab a few of the more common other domain names around it, like the .net, the .org, etc. In general, I think what happens is most people buy all these different domain names, and they have no idea why. And there are a lot of new domain names out there that are kind of cool. Like, you know, we have 9mile.farm as our website for 9mile Farm. Well, that's cool, and it's memorable. So I think that some of these other domains other than .com, etc., are cool if they're marketable. And if the .com were available, and I was going to be serious about building a brand or a business, and there was some kind of a novelty domain that was really marketable, I would buy the .com and that novelty domain. And I would probably market the novelty one, but I would have the the .com set up as a gateway into the novelty one, so that if somebody forgot or whatever, in fact, I would probably, the .com is such a powerful SEO tool, especially with a new brand that you created, I would probably build a, a entrance-type website around the .com for a second SEO hit, um, so that if somebody looked for it on Google, they would find both sites on the front page if you did your job right as an optimization person. Um, and, and I think that could be quite powerful. But, but in general, one, this, where people buy like the .com, the .net, the .org, the .edu, you know, in case you can't buy the .edu, but the .everything, right? The .name, the .us, the .tv, the .mobi. Mobi was like one of the stupidest domain names. I had a technology blog back in the early 2000s. I talked about web marketing and all. And I said the dot, the dot .mobi domain is the dumbest thing ever. Because it's, insinu it's, it's insinuating that if I was going to go to Coca-Cola's website on my mobile phone, I would go to Coke.mobi instead of Coke.com. That like we can't actually create adaptive websites. Of course, no one had adaptive websites yet, but no one actually had mobile-friendly websites, so they came out with .mobi. So the concept was that brands would buy the .mobi and then .mobi, right? So the .mobi site, and then that they would build a mobile site to go with their corporate site, and then you know people made things like a little thing in WordPress where you could just switch to the mobile-friendly, and then developers created adaptive sites. And I said all this would happen back when that came out. So you know who made money because of .mobi sites? The people who came up with .mobi. And, and that's really what the domain business has become, selling something that costs nothing and thereby making money off of ego and greed and then genuine desire for digital real estate. Those three together. So that's what I'm going to tell you. Probably one domain, the .com if available. Uh, if not, the .net is a good second choice. Any of them really will work. But try to think about the way that the net name sounds. You know, If you find a name that you like, and it's available in .com and .net, but for some reason the .net just sounds better 
it's more memorable, then buy them both. And, you know, I would always get the .com if I could. And then buy anything else that you would really want to market more than the .com, if possible. If, because sometimes that doesn't exist. Uh, hopefully that helps you. And let's take another one. Um, I recently talked about High Point Cal, uh, Carbines. And I'm not sure if this came in before or after that. Uh, but this is from Brandon in Albuquerque. Brandon said, what, which High Point Carbine caliber would you recommend? Details, I've been thinking about picking up a High Point Carbine for a while, and your Rewind episode rekindled my interest. I own a High Point pistol in 9mm and 45 ACP. I was originally planning on getting a Carbine in 45 as well. Now High Point offers the Carbine in 40 Smith & Wesson as well as a 10mm. Would it be worth to pick up a Carbine in either of those two calibers, or should I stick to 45 ACP to avoid having to stock up on yet another type of ammo? I only plan to target shoot, but wouldn't mind having the ability to hunt with the carbine as well. Ballistically, it seems 45 is better than 40, and 10 is better than 45. Thanks. Love the show, Brandon. Yeah, sort of. I'm going to tell you some things about 10 millimeter you might not know um, in, in this question. So first of all, if you really are only going to target shoot with it, then since you own a 45, I would get one in 45. I don't see much advantage to the person who's not going to do anything except target shooting and adding another caliber to their life. Um, in fact, I would say if you're only going to target shoot with it, you might actually want to consider getting one of them in 9mm because you also own a 9mm, so you already stuck 9mm, and 9mm ammo costs less. So if this is just a fun gun to shoot, take to the range, and have you know blast with, uh, you know, pun intended... Um, which the 995 uh, High Point and the uh, the 45 variant are both great for that, then I would probably settle on either one of those. If you're going to go hunting with it, the carbine turns the 40 Smith & Wesson into a ballistic twin of the 10mm out of a handgun, and it is a very effective hunting round. The 45 ACP, not as much, but it's a pretty... With the right load, 45 is... More than adequate for like deer size game, which is where you're kind of at anyway with this. Now, the 10 millimeter. This is going to shock some people, and it's going to get some people telling me I'm wrong, but if you look up the numbers, you're going to find that I'm right. In most over the counter, we'll call them loads of the 40 Smith and Wesson and the 10 millimeter, something odd happens with a carbine. The 10 millimeter, the, the 40 Smith and Wesson, I said it's almost a ballistic twin of the 10 millimeter of the handgun. I, I actually undersold that. It's, it's better. It has higher muzzle velocities than the equivalent weight bullet out of the 10 millimeter out of, let's say, a 1911 10 millimeter or a Glock 10 millimeter. So it now is outperforming the 10 millimeter round. When we put the 10 millimeter round in the carbine, we get a gain, but it ends up so close to where the equivalent load in the 40 ends up out of the carbine, the advantage of the 10 millimeter is largely lost. Now, why is this? It's because the 10 millimeter is not loaded to its full potential in most boxed ammunition. It is not that the damn thing can't be more powerful, because it can. A lot more powerful. It can be a dadgone sledgehammer. You're talking getting into like 41 Magnum territory and what it can be. But it's generally not loaded that way. And part of that is why the FBI 
settled on nine millimeter, about forty forty Smith and Wesson anyway, less recoil and less over penetration of a target. And the reality is, when you're talking most of the loads that are used for defense, which is the primary use right now of the forty and the ten millimeter, you only need so much, right? You only need so much, and we're generally going with lighter weight bullets that are expanding type bullets, not the best thing for putting through the shoulders of a feral hog that weighs 170 pounds, but plenty for a bad two-legged rat. Got me? If we'll load the 10 to its potential, which either means hand loads or in general buying um, ammunition from companies, let's say like double tap ammunition, then the, the advantage returns even in the carbine length, the carbine versus carbine between the two. And to be clear, what I'm saying is, if you go buy, you know, Spear Gold Dot 155 grain personal defense rounds for the 10 and the equivalent for the 40, 40, uh, 40 Smith and Wesson, put them both in handguns with the same barrel length, the 10 well outperforms the 40. You put both of those rounds into carbines with 17 inch barrels, the, the advantage, you, both of them go a lot faster than the handgun, but the carbine muzzle velocities are almost the same. Sometimes the 40 wins for some weird-ass reason. And it's because even though you've given more to the 10mm, both of them are getting full utilization of what they have, I guess is the best way to look at it. When we go to these heavier bullets, heavier loads, like Double Tap makes a 200-grain uh, hard-cast lead 10mm that has a muzzle velocity of something like 1,250 feet per second out of a Glock handgun. And we put that into a carbine. Yeah. Yeah, we, we have something really special. So if you really are serious about the hunting potential of it, I would go out of everything that, that High Point has available with the 10 millimeter, Because if you'll either hand load or buy custom ammo, let's call it, like Corbon and Double Tap and things like that, you can get off-the-shelf ammo that is outstanding. However, the reality is, if you went to like the uh, the Hunter, uh, the Hunter uh, ammunition at Double Tap, all three of them will work just fine. Just you got a little bit more with the ten, and it's cool. And I think it would have more value long term if you ever wanted to resell it to somebody else or trade it in or something like that than either the nine or the forty-five. Again, though, if you just are gonna, if you if you're really just gonna target shoot with it, I'd look to the nine millimeter. It's gonna cost you the least amount of money to uh, to do that. Now, if you hand load, that changes things. So you make that decision yourself if you hand load. Next up, there's uh, some information out about weed killers like Roundup, and basically, uh, Roundup is bad for you. Okay, right from uh, South Park, but. What this actually reveals, and I don't want to read the article because it's pretty long, and I'll just give you the upshot so we can keep the show length down today. Uh, weed killer products are more toxic than their active ingredient, according to tests. So what they're saying is Roundup mainly is made up of glyphosate. Uh, it's a glyphosate-based uh, weed killer. But there's other things in it. And so the testing that's been done on these weed killers for 40 years, by the way, to determine, you know, what is their safe application rates? Do they present a risk or a danger to uh, people when they're used on commercial crops? How often should they be used and in what quantities and all of that? All of that was based on testing 
of the individual ingredients, and primarily glyphosate in, in the instance of Roundup. Turns out there's other stuff in there. It's not just glyphosate and water. And when we put these things together, they're more toxic than they are as measured individually. Hmm. Does that even sound like something that would surprise anybody? That we could take two things and put them together and both together might be worse than they would be individually? Come on. Come on. Just on a, a basic logarithmic viewpoint, if I have something that does, you know, one point of damage to the human body and another thing that does one point of damage to the human body and I put them together, well, I get two. I shouldn't judge them both as a one separately. I should join them as a two combined. That gets us in a whole world of shit with what's in vaccines, by the way, but we won't go there today. But isn't it possible that the two together could have a bigger effect? Well, any person that's ever taken medication from their doctor and has been advised of things like contraindications would realize that's the case. You can have two perfectly safe drugs But if they're given together, then they can create problems that neither would create by itself. Hmm. So for 40 years, the government has been letting companies like Monsanto largely test their own shit and provide their own data on it while your safety is at stake without testing the ingredients combined together in the final product as it's actually used. And this, I'm back to the GMO issue. And people that think I'm anti-science because I am opposed to GMOs as they're used in today's world. Because the main thing we do with genetic modification today is, well, we make it easier to get away with destroying soil. And we make it so we can spray herbicide onto the food that you eat. The herbicide goes into the plant. It goes systemic. And you eat the herbicide, which is, by the way, more toxic than they told you it was because they were testing the individual ingredients, not as it was used and put into your body. I mean, guys, so I, this was like one of my pet issues when I started this show almost 10 years ago. I was on this probably once every two weeks at least about GMOs and about the, the, the herbicide problem and the herbicide enablement that GMO allows. Because I'm going to tell you right now, tomato blight is a problem. If they came out with a tomato that was blight immune through ge genetic modification... And then that seed was able to breed true to type so that it could then be reproduced simply with repetitive breeding from that point forward. And we didn't do some kind of weird shit with this. We just basically did genetic selection or something like that at an accelerated level. I would probably, if, as long as it didn't taste like crap, I'd probably buy that seed. And if we could take that and take all these wonderful heirloom tomatoes without destroying the quality of them and simply make them immune to blight... And if it actually worked, that might be a good thing. But that ain't what they're doing now, is it? No. The only reason these companies do this genetic modification is because they make money twice that way. They do the genetic modification, then they make the money selling you the seed, and then they make the money selling you the chemical that goes with it. And if you don't believe that, this is what I want you to tell me then. Tell me a major corporation, large, publicly traded, multi-million, multi-billion dollar corporation today, that makes genetically modified seed that doesn't also make chemicals to go with it. And you'll find none. You'll find none. 
They all, that's all they do. That's the whole reason they do it. And they've been poisoning you for years. And I think at least some of the chronic explosion in health problems in this country, specifically autoimmune inflammatory type diseases, come from the use of this shit in our food supply. And this is why I try not to eat anything that contains this stuff. I'm not an eco-Nazi. I'm not like, oh, that's not organic. I won't let it touch my body or even be in the same room with it. That's not me. But I, you know, there's certain things that I go the organic route because I know it is about the only way to avoid eating glyphosate. Since I, I eat very little starches as it is, it, it, it makes it easier. But if I do want to have some corn chips to go with a taco or something like that, you know, to make a taco or what have you, or you know, just have some chips once in a while and live a little, then I'll go with an organic product. Not because I have complete, you know, total hatred of all things non-organic. Organic's better, it's not perfect, but I know I'm not going to get GMO, so I know I'm not going to be eating Roundup. And, and honestly, to be fair, I think that like if you eat in moderation of stuff like that anyway, I don't think it's good to have a bit of Roundup here and there, but it's probably something your body can deal with. But people who are living their lives, as the average American does today, where their diet is primarily composed of, even if they don't see it, corn and soy, They're the two most consumed things in America today, corn and soy. They're in everything. Even things that don't look like a corn or soy product. Start reading labels, you'll see that. And they're basically putting this shit into their body. From the time they get weaned from a bottle until they're put in a box, if you don't think that has an adverse effect on health, I, just, I don't even know how to explain it to you. Anyway, you can read the article if you want to. It's in the show notes. On that note, and not being an eco-Nazi... I put out a video, uh, two videos this weekend on a new uh, aquaponic system that I'm building. And uh, it is a 300-gallon system that is being built with a frame around it. I'm trying to do this one very ex uh, ex aesthetically pleasing. Um, partly because of where it's going, I want it to look good for myself. But the reason I kind of chose it as my next project is, I, is I've been doing aquaponics. I've gotten a lot of questions on getting a spouse on board and stuff like that. And usually it's a guy trying to get the gal on board. And I'm going to tell you guys what your women don't like. And that's your project's unfinished all over the place, and I'm guilty of it. I have a great wife that allows me to get away with it. Uh, and, but the other thing is they don't like it to look tacky. They want it to look pretty. So I'm working on making this thing look pretty. And what I decided to do, since I can't really bury the tank, and, and with you know a, a granddaughter running around now, and dogs too, it's really not a good idea for me to completely bury a tank and make it ground level, because it encourages things like dogs pulling stuff out of it and things like that. So what I did is I dug down as deep as I could, which was about eight inches in the area. I'm using a two-foot deep, 300-gallon Rubbermaid tank. And I put the tank into the hole, leveled it, and I built a box around it out of landscape timbers, which are pressure-treated. And one guy came by and said, you know, you should grow black locusts for it, and you know, I want to do it today, not 10 years from now. I've got hundreds of locusts. And he said that, you know, the, the, the pressure-treated pine that they make those out of is toxic. So I want to cover that today. Toxicity and pressure-treated wood, I've talked about it. And what most people think they know ain't even true about pressure-treated lumber. And I also want to address another person said, How do you, how long do you expect that to last? I put these things into my property and they only lasted three years. Well, that person probably shouldn't be using pressure-treated lumber. And we'll get to why that would be the case in a bit here. Um, 
And that has to do with soil composition, acidity, and moisture levels. This is really what we're talking about there. So here's what people think. Um, people tend to, to believe that current pressure-treated lumber is treated with a chemical called CCA, or chromated copper uh, arsenate. And basically it's chromium, copper, and arsenic. All right, And... Um, a lot of people think that that is the, the newer, better version of pressure-treated lumber. And it was up until 2004 when they pretty much got rid of it as well. So I can't even remember what we used before CCA, but we used a different treatment product for lumber that was considered to be a toxic and a risk. So they switched to CCA. And CCA really wasn't bad. I had no problems using CCA lumber for raised beds, for instance. And I'll, I'll explain part of why here in a second. Um, but there really wasn't ever any conclusive evidence that using it for retaining walls and things like that in construction and buildings and stuff uh, posed any risk to anybody anywhere. But the EPA, in their wisdom, decided that less arsenic could not be a bad thing and that we should get rid of arsenic because just in the total quantity of, uh, of pressure-treated lumber out there is a lot of arsenic going into the soil and in the environment, and then the, the chemical itself had leftovers and residues and its own issues prior to going into the wood. And this is kind of a different story when you have 8,000 gallons of it in a warehouse, right? So it would probably be a good idea to get rid of this arsenic stuff. So they changed, and the, the majority of lumber today is what they call ACQ-treated lumber, and that's alkaline copper quaternary. And basically the only thing in there that you would have any concerns about whatsoever is the copper. Copper actually is a necessary micronutrient. Um, so if you get your typical bottle of multivitamins and mineral supplements, you'll see that copper is included. It, it's a relatively small amount. We don't need much copper, but, but it is essential. Um, it, it does things for us, like um, it supports good health. It helps with um, bones and rebuilding of um, any protein-based tissue. And it, it's it's involved in energy production at the cellular level. We actually need it for our cells to have energy so they can do the, the, the essential functions to life. So we need some copper in our diets. And the truth is we get copper in our diets. and It's heavily in shellfish, almonds, uh, lots of other things have some copper. In fact, most vegetation has some copper in it. Now, the other side of that is we can get too much copper. It can become toxic. But the, the, the level that a, of copper that a plant can absorb is highly limited unless you're in an extremely acidic environment. Because the plant will not take up the copper in excess because it will kill the plant. By the time the plant has enough copper for it to have a problem for you to eat it, the plant dies. So, And there's actually a lot of... Uh, nutrients and, and things that we would not want in our body, like cadmium is another one, like you can get into excess of it. Much bigger of a problem than something like um, copper. The plant won't take it unless it needs it. So even if you're 
pressure-treated ACQ lumber puts more copper into the soil than you would like, unless you're in a highly acidic, and I'm talking like a 4 acid of your soil, the plant is not going to take it. 4 and lower with a lot of moisture, your plant may be forced to drink copper against its plant will. So it's just not even an issue. Now, let's talk about how long it lasts and how this it could have a little bit of a concern depending on where you are. You, you notice the first thing in ACQ lumber is alkaline, right? And most soils are alkaline. In fact, to the, dis, the dismay of the gardener who would prefer to have a, a, a neutral to slightly acidic, you know, seven down to six, most soils that gardeners start with are like seven and a half, you know, in that range, seven two, seven four. And remember, uh, pH movement is is, is uh, exponential. Uh, there's a bigger difference between seven one and seven two than there is in seven and seven one. All right. So most people start on the alkaline side. So we're already in a place where we have alkaline and alkaline. Well, what do we get when alkaline and alkaline goes together? Nothing. Right. What do we get when neutral and alkaline goes together? Nothing. What do we get when acid and alkaline go together? We get a reaction. The more acidic your soil, the faster the uh, alkaline copper quaternary uh, chemical will leach from the board or the lumber. Now, why do we even do this? What's going on here? So what we're using is an antifungal and an anti-insect. This is the two things that we're doing with pressure-treated lumber. We're, one, saying we want to create an environment where fungus can't grow. Because fungus breaks down carbon, and that causes wood to rot. And insects tunnel into it, eat it, whatever. Well, they don't want copper. So the, the quaternary and, or quarter, quarter, quaternary, I think is how you say it, is the antifungal here. And the copper is the anti-insect. If we go into a highly acidic soil with this, your lumber will break down faster. And one way to look at it is when that pressure-treated piece of lumber begins to be affected by insects and when it begins to be affected by fungus, it's leached out enough of that pressure treatment, it's gone away, that it now it's acting like a piece of pine that was never treated in the first place. So you can figure out then with some reliability how quickly that chemical gets into your soil. So when we build stuff with them down here, this guy said, you know, three years. And I was like, do you live in a swamp or somewhere really acidic, like a friggin' cranberry bog or a friggin' place where blueberries grow everywhere or something like that? Because blueberries love acidic soil. So does cranberry. We build stuff down here. We, I've seen retaining walls that we had to pull out on construction projects that were 15 years old, and that wood was looked like the day it was put in. Why? We have alkaline soils. We have a relatively dry, dry climate. And so... If you are in a, a situation like that, not only did everything I first said about how little there is to worry about anyway apply, but now there's less than little to worry about because you're getting a very small amount. Because the reason that log at 10 years still doesn't rot is most of the copper is still in it. That's why the termites aren't eating it, because they're still in it. And it amazes me, you'll see people worry about this, and then they'll put a preservative product on their, on their wood that's probably got more of a health risk than the pressure-treated lumber would have in the first place. So I, I think people largely should stop worrying about pressure-treated lumber. 
It is affordable, it is available, and it works good. But it may not work everywhere. If you do a soil test and your pH is somewhere in like the fives, um, you actually may need to be adjusting it up, but you're always going to be fighting that. And you might want to find a different building material in that situation. Uh, because you're going to have a very quick reaction between the alkaline and the acidic in that world, and that's going to cause a rapid leaching. And it's not even so much a health risk, because again, unless you're into really acidic soil, your plants aren't going to take that much copper in anyway. If they take in too much, they'll kill themselves. They won't look good. You'll know something's wrong. Um, but it's a matter of then the investment's not really there, is it? If you're going to have wood rot out on you in three years, you should find a product that won't. So just don't be afraid of it, but do make sure that it's right for you. I hope that makes sense, and hope that's you know considered kind of a level-headed view of something that's become really almost faith-based in the world of gardening, especially when you get a natural gardening, organic gardening, permaculture, where oh, it's a chemical, so it's bad. Water's a chemical. Dihydrogen monoxide. That sounds scary, doesn't it? That's what water is. Two hydrogens, one oxygen. Dihydrogen monoxide. See? Everything's a chemical. Everything's a chemical. Like, just because it's a chemical doesn't mean it's evil. And, and we need to be a little bit more strategic in making our decisions, I think, than we are at sometimes. I'm going to end up today with an aquaponics question. Uh, I have two questions, Jack. This is from, let's see, Seth in South Central Texas. Uh, is a decommissioned one-horsepower pool pump a viable option for an aquaponic system? And what potential problems would I likely encounter using a 750- to 800-gallon main tank? And he continues, uh, pump, I'm completely new to aquaponics. A neighbor is offering me the retired pool pump for the aquaponics system I'm planning to build. They upgraded their pump filter, so the pump is operational. Would unfiltered water potentially damage the pump? I realize that I need a basket over the intake to prevent sucking up fish, large debris, and vegetation. And two, would the operating cost of the pool pump be high enough to offset the acquisition cost, which is free? Um, so let's stop there because he has some questions about this very large tank here in a second as well. Um, so a a one horsepower rating is equivalent to 745 watts. Now I have seen one horsepower pumps that are drawing more watts than 745 watts because efficiencies, right? And so there's a the, the, basically. The spec is that the pump has a horsepower of power, but it might have to draw more than that to give you that horsepower, if that makes sense. But So you look at it in the neighborhood of somewhere between 800 to 1,000 watts to run a one-horsepower uh, pool pump. There's a couple things at play here. Number one, is it a two-speed pump? Not all, but most pool pumps are two-speed. And generally, they are the one speed is full power and the other is half power. So that means we go down to a half a horsepower. And on a large aquaponics system, you may be in a half to three-quarter horse requirement. And your system may or may not need that. We'll get to that in a second. But So it's not really that bad as far as the power draw. The other thing is, and we'll talk about this when we talk about your operation and what you're planning to design, it is not necessary for that pump to run 24 hours a day. It really isn't. That pump might run for 12 hours during the day and go to sleep for 12 hours a night. Now, effectively, if it's an 800-watt draw or even, say, a 1,000-watt draw, we've taken it down to as though it were a 500-watt pump running all day long, which is still higher than a lot of aquaponic systems need. But you get my point. 
All right, so it's probably not that big of a power sink. It, you know, think of it this way. If you had a pool, that's what you'd be using, right? And people don't go broke because they put a pool in. I did some calculations, and we talked about California earlier. Um, to run a one-horsepower pump in California costs you about $2 a day. To run a one-horsepower pump here in Texas costs you about $0.70 cents a day. It's not that much money, right? Um, $0.70 cents a day for an aquaponics system, for a power requirement, it's not a bad bad deal. Now, let's talk about the rest of this because I'll come back to the pump as we get into the other part. Tank, I scavenged a scrap, 750 to 800 gallon chemical containment spill catchment tank from work. Outer dimensions are 85 by 115 inches by 25 inches of depth. Uh, I'm assuming it's 25 inches of depth, and, and it could change some things about what I'm saying if I'm wrong. Uh, it was used as a spill containment for a depth tank. After pressure watching it, I rinsed out with bleach solution. It's been sitting for the last two to three months filled with water and molasses. I've been using it to water newly planted trees with no ill effects. I'm pretty sure there's no residues. The sheer size has me a bit intimidated. Would my only issue be making sure I've got enough fish? I thought I might use something like hardware cloth to separate it into two to three areas to segregate based on size, social incompatibility, etc., We are in a rental, but the landlord's okay with it and will likely be here at least another one or two years and may end up buying a place. I've selected a spot along the east wall of the house and will give it about 60 degrees of morning sun and then complete shade from 1 to 2 p.m. on. Uh, I'm not sure if I'd still need shade cloth, but 15 to 20 foot of pipe would allow me to grow beds to be put on the railings of the back deck. That's about the zone one as I can get, which is shaded by about 30 foot live oak tree and about till about 11 and the house in the afternoon. I'm not intending to insulate around or beneath the tank, shore up the sides as well. Okay, um, I'm intending to insulate around and beneath the tank and shore up the sides as well. Okay, that's good. Um, so what we're talking about here then is putting these grow beds right in the zone one. I love that. And a lot of this has to do with what those what do you plan to do with those grow beds, as whether they're going to be ebb and flow beds or wicking beds. If you plan to plan to primarily do uh, wicking beds, and I would, I would do flow-through wicking beds in any project as my primary grow. It doesn't matter how many fish you have because the soil is going to buffer everything, and you can fertilize with ease in the soil. The soil is your friend. Um, so if you're going to do soil-based wicking beds on that rail, which will weigh less, a, a bed built with some rock and some water and some soil weighs less than an ebb and flow bed weighs, especially when it's full with water, so there's less concerns there, then it doesn't really matter how many fish you put in it. It can be more like a fish tank than an aquaponics tank in that case. you can That dimension is pretty big. You can make it kind of cool. Um, also, 750 to 800 gallons. Well, if we filled it halfway, it's only, what, 375 gallons to, to 400 gallons? Problem. Here's the problem with that. Because it sounds like the tank is a long rectangle that's relatively shallow, you, if you only fill it halfway, that's a foot of depth. And that gets into issues with running your pump. There's things that could be done. If you have a bunch of cinder block laying around, for instance, you could put a all the way along ledge. That displaces an awful lot of water. And now we can just set wicking beds right in the tank by just setting them on top of the cinder blocks. And that reduces the total amount of water. 
And if we run a little bit shallower, then again, we can push our water down in the 400-gallon range, which is a great range for a, a, a good-sized aquaponic system. You can get enough nutrient there to do some ebb and flow and, and have it be effective. But if we're going to do wicking beds along your rail and maybe just one or two ebb and flow beds for the health of the system, there's a lot of stuff we can grow in ebb and flow beds that isn't so sensitive to getting you know every single thing out of the system. It's They're less susceptible to deficiencies in, in uh, iron, for instance, which is one of your big things that you have to figure out how to supplement with an aquaponic system in ebb and flow. Uh, leafy greens and stuff like that will do okay. You know, if you want to just have a healthy system, you know, one ebb and flow bed with mint in it is all you really need just for the health of the system. It provides a filter, a biology. You got a great pretty plant. It makes it through most of the year before it dies back to the roots in the winter, and it comes right back as soon as we start getting our warm days here in Texas. So that might be a way to look. Now, if we do that, if we do that, I've got an idea for you. That pool pump has some ass. It can move some water. That's what it's designed to do. It can put a lot of water quickly through those ebb and flow beds. In fact, I mean through, those, through wicking beds. In fact, my one concern here is that you're going to have too much water, and it's going to be hard to control your flow rates. But if we were just going to stick one ebb and flow bed right over the tank so it's easy, you just put some cinder blocks in there and set it on top of it, or set it, you know, some, some 4x4s across the tank and set it on top of there, assuming the tank will support it, whatever we do, and that just fills up and dumps straight into the system. We don't have any real long, you know, you're not running that, that, that 20 feet of pipe that you are to get up to your, your, your rails. Um, that could run on like a $30 15-watt pump. Okay? Then go get yourself a mechanical timer that works in 15-minute increments. Each little pin you push back is 15 minutes. And if you were to set that so it ran 15 minutes every hour and plug your pool pump into that, it would kick on, it would run for 15 minutes, it would run water through your wicking beds, it would bring them back up to their top capacity, it would push that water through the system, it's going to create a return, and it would shut off. And 45 minutes later, it's going to kick on again. Now we're only using it effectively six hours a day. Because we're using it a quarter of an hour for 24 hours. We probably could run it 15 minutes every two hours. And it would be more than efficient, sufficient. I am actually looking at doing this with this new build I'm doing. Where I'm thinking, I might actually expand the system to be really big. This might be the last one I built. I had a really big one planned, and I just don't know if I want to put the money into it. And this one build could be all I could ever need, honestly, from a production standpoint. The other one would be... I want a big water feature, right? And eventually I could add another water feature to this one if I wanted to anyway. Um, so what I'm thinking about doing is running one of my larger heavy-duty pumps, um, like a Lanchez dirty water pump, and pumping that water out of that pump, those long distances to all the grow beds, if I do expand it as big as I, I plan on, and then taking one of the little 18-watt pumps to run the three ebb and flow beds, because all it's got to do is bring the water up and what you can do if you want to do multiple ebb and flow beds, if they're right over a tank, for instance, if they're close together, you can manifold them together so that they, they, they're all linked. And you only have one siphon. And when the one siphon kicks, they all dump. So you have three filling at once and then dumping at once, and three filling at once and dumping at once. My concern with doing that for mine is, you know, you got three 50-gallon tanks, 
with the rock displacement, they're probably holding 20 gallons of water each. That's 60 gallons missing from the system in a 250 gallons of actual water in the system system. It could get quite low during that period of time, but uh, it, it's still something I'm considering maybe doing. And what it does is it reduces your points of failure. And it reduces the size of pump you need because every time we open up another place for water to get delivered, we reduce how much the pump can do for us. So, for instance, if we're putting in wicking beds and we put them all on a single level, we can run them all through one return and set the returns at the same height on all of them. And they'll all stay level and we only have one delivery point and one return point. And so if you start thinking that way, you can get pretty creative and do a lot with a little pump. So I think what you should do is you should definitely do something. You have this opportunity, you might as well learn from it. I think you should go with wicking beds as your primary grow media, which I recommend for everybody anyway, because it just makes things easier. And it's, it's just fantastic what it does for you. You should install some ebb and flow. You should give serious consideration to like do the math and figure out, well, what pump would I need to run the whole thing if I went with a standard off-the-shelf instead of this pool pump? And then figure out, like, how much do I need to just run my little ebb and flow right down here over the tank? And then maybe that pool pump's great. I mean, you said to your, you know, 15 to 20 feet of pipe, that's not very far, but how much up is it? The more up it is, the more valuable that powerful pool pump is. And the thing about the pool pump is it is designed for this. Now, the other thing about a pool pump is it's an external pump. It doesn't go in the water, so you have to think about overheating, making sure it's shaded. As far as your shade, I think you're going to be okay. If anything, you have more shade than you probably should, so you should be good to go with that. And you could just figure that out as you go. If the plants are unhappy because they're getting too much sun, give them some more shade. But start out just letting things be the way that they are. Um, on the DEF, I knew I'd get people like, I can't believe he's using a tank. DEF or diesel exhaust fluid, I did a bunch of research on this for you today. I can't find a reason not to use that tank. Even if I let my inner eco-Nazi come out, I cannot find a reason for you not to use that tank. DEF is basically urea, which is piss. And it DEF really isn't piss. Don't try pissing in your DEF tank and your diesel truck. You will mess things up. Uh, but urea is urea. And that's basically what we use in aquaponics. People think in aquaponics we use the fish poop to grow the plants. We don't. The poop breaks down in nitrates and nitrites. And then the nitrites are what we use to grow the plants. And it's the bacteria that break down the fish poop. So in the end, we're, we're dealing primarily with urea from the fish. So with everything I did and with that fact being what it is, I can't give you a reason to not use that tank. Um, I would go ahead and go for it. It is a big tank, and that's why I would edge toward using wicking beds and just not even trying to balance that system, especially since you may be moving in you know a year or two. Uh, the less fish you have, the less headaches you'll have at that point. Try to figure out what to do with them. You just eat all the damn things. Um, in your climate, you can do tilapia, but you probably can't overwinter them. You're not that much further south than I am. Uh, I would look to bluegills. I, I really would. Uh, and with that, we have wrapped up another show. Let me remind you, one of the ways you can support this show, if you like the work that we do and you want to help us out, is to do your online shopping at tspaz.com. Just go to tspaz.com whenever you want to do some online shopping and see if you can find anything there that can help you out or just get on over, check out deals of the day. But as long as you start there, you, you help us out no matter what you buy. Um, today's reviewed product, and remember, if I've reviewed it, I own it. If I recommend it, I own it. 
And I use it, or I wouldn't ask you to spend your money on it if I wouldn't spend my money on it and be happy with it after I did. But this is a product I've brought out several versions of them. This is the eight LED solar solar wireless security lights from a company called Litum, L-I-T-O-M. Uh, since I first started recommending Litum, their price has gone up. Not a lot, a little bit. I actually think that's good. I think they're a quality product that people like and keep buying more of them, so they were able to raise their price instead of having to lower it to try to get rid of it. Um, I've been very impressed with Litum lights. I have, I think, 16, 24 of the 8 LEDs and 4 of the 20 LEDs. Uh, all of them have been running for at least a year, some longer. In all of that time, one stopped working. I unscrewed the back, popped in a new rechargeable battery, set it back up, and started working again. Uh, I am actually surprised I haven't had to change a battery yet, though, since there's like a no-name, you know, rechargeable batteries in them. Uh, but they, they have worked fantastic, absolutely fantastic. I have them as accent lights on one of my fish ponds. I have them out at my front gate uh, so when we get home at night, we can see what we're doing. I have one right out in front of the house. Uh, I have one out by the pool when we have to walk out there at night. They're fantastic. They're motion-sensing. Or you can set them to basically come on when it gets dark. The ones I have around my fish pond, I have them set so when it gets dark, they just come on. And you can go really bright or half bright to, to make them last longer if you want to do that. Man, I've been up at 6 o'clock in the morning. The damn things are still on. And they don't get a lot of sun where that pond is. Some of you have seen the videos of it. I, I am totally impressed with these things. I think they're a good security measure. I think they're a good convenience measure. And, like, I have them around my ponds because they come on at the edge of the pond. That attracts insects. The insects get in the water. Fish eat the insects. So we're function stacking with that. Uh, and it's just for beauty around the pond. Lighting water up is pretty. And it's an inexpensive way to go. Uh, you can check them out today. They are, again, made by a company called Litum. I've seen a lot of products like this on Amazon. I've bought a couple of the less expensive ones, and I regretted it. And I have settled on Litum, and I suggest if you need a rechargeable solar security light, you look to Litum. Again, I have the 8 and 20 LED models. They also make a very big one um, with 60 LED, or 54 LEDs. I'm sorry, 54 LEDs. I think those would be fantastic when you need a lot of light. I would want to mount them somewhere they're not real obvious, though, because they're so big they just kind of look like an eyesore to me. So I haven't, I haven't had need of them, so I haven't bought the 54. But based on how the 8 and 20s work, I, I can't see them not being uh, outstanding. I would probably go with 220s uh, spaced out a little bit in the area that I would put 154. I think that would work out better and give you better light coverage as well. So check them out today, and remember, you can always help us by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That brings us to our song of the day. Now, I don't play a lot of tearjerker songs, but John Adam has one for us today. He said it's kind of like a, a day-late tribute to mothers for Mother's Day, and it's called Supermarket Flowers by a British artist named Ed Sheeran. Um, this song was written by Ed as a tribute to his grandmother, and she passed away, and they had to clean out her hospital room. And I'll leave it at that, man, because you can imagine. Um, it's not a feel-good song, but it's a song about feeling good. And what I mean by that is when I when I read the uh, song facts on this, what Ed basically said is he was really hit hard when he lost his grandmother. She was a big part of uh, his music career and encouraging him and, and his brother as well, who's also a musician in more of a classic music world. And uh, she just he's really felt the loss. But in the end, the song's a celebration of the amazing person that she was. And even though it's a sad song, it's a feel-good song in a way. And he had to make a decision if he could either just lament it or celebrate her life. And we are one day past Mother's Day, but I'll tell you what, 
for a lot of people, their grandmothers are second mothers to them. In fact, to me, my grandmothers on both sides were more involved in my life and raising me and making the man that I am than, than my own birth mother was. Uh, so I can I can definitely see some parallels with that as well. Anyway, with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you, feel, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tougher, even if they don't. I took the supermarket flowers from the windowsill I threw the D.O.T. from the cup Packed up the photo album Matthew had made Memories of a life that's been loved Took the Garrett Wilson cars and stuffed animals Pulled the old ginger beer down the sink Dad always told me don't you cry when you're down But mum there's a tear every time that I blink Pieces, it's tearing me up, but I know a heart that's broke is a heart that's been loved. So I'll sing hallelujah. You were an angel in the shape of my mom. When I fell down, you'd be there holding me up. Spread your wings as you go. And when God takes you back, he'll say hallelujah, you're home. I fluffed the pillows, made the bed, stacked the chairs up. Folded your nightgowns neatly in a case John said he'd drive then put his hand on my cheek And wiped a tear from the side of my face Now hope that I see the world as you did Cause I know a life with love is a life that's been lived So I'll sing hallelujah shape of my mom When I fell down you'd be there holding me up Spread your wings as you go And when God takes you back You'll say hallelujah You're See the person I have become Spread your wings and I know That when God took you back He said hallelujah, you're home